Hi, everybody. Welcome to the CrocCast podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey. And today we're going to give a brief intro of our show and then have our first interview with Dr. Chris Carmichael. So a little bit about me. Uh, I kind of got into reptiles and herpetology like a lot of people in my generation by watching The Crocodile Hunter and all those different documentaries growing up. And uh, now I've been so many years since that that uh, it's kind of morphed into keeping reptiles. So I do have a small collection of my own. I've also done a few internships here and there. And that's about all the essentials you need to know about me. Yeah, so uh, I got into herpetology. Um, well, as a kid, I was always I always watched like Crocodile Hunter and different documentaries and stuff, and I always loved animals and, and science um, and biology. That always interested me. And um, it wasn't until about middle school that I I, uh, I met a friend who was at, who was big into reptiles as well, and that's what led me to kind of exclude all other animals and really <laughs> go with uh, reptiles as it. Um, that kind of like friendship really like stirred my passion for it and everything so um i also have a particular interest in research as well so um uh that's that's my main focus is like research oriented herpetology and that's how kind of how i got started it's just a passion of pets since i was a little kid and um it's just grown to something bigger now <laughs> so always going out catching and herp uh, catching reptiles and stuff and keeping them for a few weeks it's always fun so yeah. What about uh, you, Dr. Carmichael? Well, uh, my twin brother Rob and I, we, we uh, like you guys, you know, we, we, we uh, you know, grew up loving animals, and I think every kid at some point wants a pet that they can hold and those kind of things. So uh, my parents got us the traditional hamster, gerbil, those kind of things, but quickly we started expressing some uh, extreme allergies to the, uh, to the rodent group. So uh, we ended up... Um, uh, our allergist kind of recommended doing some fish, so we got some fish. Uh, fish were cool for about a day, and then uh, uh, we then kind of uh, went to some aquatic turtles that ate the fish, and I thought that was a lot more cool. So uh, from there, the turtles went to tortoises, and tortoises went to lizards, and lizards went to snakes eventually. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things I think our allergists had told our parents that this would just be a fleeting little short-term interest and you know we'd move on but uh, that never happened and uh, I think by the time we were in, in middle school my brother and I our, our, our bedroom was literally lined with you know just dozens and dozens of different types of reptiles um, our dad would take us to the zoo uh, and mom would, they would take us to the zoo almost every you know quite quite often and typically it, it usually meant dropping us off at the reptile house and picking us up later on there so we we you know, we just kind of gravitated to the uh, to the to the scaly brethren and you know from there it uh, just stuck and uh, loved it, loved it all the way through and uh, was fortunate to later on the very curator uh, Ray Pauly at Brookfield Zoo that you know, he was like the the rock star to me uh, but uh, later on in life I was able to work with him um, after grad school uh, as a zookeeper in the reptile house for a little bit and loved it and that just kind of kept on. Uh, fueling my interest in uh, herpetology. Later on, I went into uh, looking at more of the research side of things, and uh, was fortunate uh, fortunate to be able to work with uh, the Tuatara in New Zealand as part of my master's degree. 
and then uh, part of my PhD degree was mainly looking at some uh, different Indonesian pythons. So that's that's the uh, I guess the short version of, of how I got into it. So. Yeah, I actually, um, that's funny. I think the, the pet route actually played a little role in, in me as well because my parent, my family was always into cats, and I hate cats. And uh, yeah. <laughs> cats are kind of more of a, seen as more of like a feminine pet anyway, so I was like, I want my own pet, and I guess, you know, the antithesis to that would then be reptiles. <laughs> and so, but my mom hated reptiles, so I would just go out and catch them and then keep them in tanks <laughs> out in, the, in, in my garage or in my room and stuff, and she'd find out a few weeks later, so I'd let him go, and then I'd go catch another one, and <laughs> that helped feed my love for reptiles, too. Yeah, my mom also had a really uh, strict no reptile rule in the house until uh, finally I got my first snake probably about three years ago now, and I just had uh, snake fever, so reptile fever ever since, just been adding more and more stuff. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned that you did uh, master's work with Tuatara and the PhD work. Um, what are you currently working on right now? Uh, I'm focusing um, on uh, some different research, mainly with uh, actually venoms and, uh, and Gila monsters. And so that's something that we've been looking at um, over the last few years uh, in conjunction with Dr. Steve Feigard in our Institute for Cancer Research at Bob Jones University. So uh, a lot of that, still doing some uh, some snake work as well, uh, but right now the, the, the big part of it is uh, kind of uh, getting a better handle on on, on, on exactly you know the, the properties of the venom in both Gila monsters and Mexican bead lizards, um, and just adding to the data you know the data set that's out there, um, you know trying trying to find you know it, it's a, it's a tricky thing trying to find out what what in venom is targeting what on the cells and how are they, you know, how is it causing a change in behavior of the cell and physiological machinery inside the cell, what's it doing to that. So uh, a lot, lot of work to be done with that. But that's kind of where we kind of shifted. Uh, I, lo I love Gila monsters and bead lizards on top of it. They're just a phenomenal reptile to work with. Um, so I think it's the, uh, the best of both worlds <laughs> with that. So we get to, you know, we basically extract the venom and, um, and then um, uh, we, we test the venom and try to purify some of the proteins and peptides from the venom to see how that is targeting certain types of, at this, at this point, certain types of uh, small cell carcinomas in, in lung, uh, lung uh, cancer tissue. Um, so what, and this is kind of more of a, a little bit more of a contentious or a point for debate, I guess, um, in the, the reptile hobby and whatnot. But um, there's uh, there's the prevalent thought that like Mexican beaded lizards and Gila monsters are the only venomous lizards out there. Um, but there's right. a lot of other people that are um, adamant that there are more. I know Brian Fry believes there are more. What are, what are your thoughts oh, on yeah. the, the topic? Oh, there's, there's without a doubt there's uh, um, you know we've we've, we've got um, we've, we've got other venomous lizards. You know Brian Fry, Dr. Fry has certainly shown that pretty much uh, without without really any doubt. Uh, there's uh, there's a group of, you know, the, the, the taxonomy of lizards right now is kind of a, a, a little, kind of going through a change right now because of the fact we have some venomous species, uh, including the Komodo dragon uh, now, and there's no doubt that Komodo dragon uh, is, is a venomous lizard. I mean, they have uh, they have spongy tissue in the uh, uh, mandibular gland, uh, the salivary, this modified salivary glands that are uh, 
producing uh, toxins, and you know it's been so much. It's it's, it's been it's been very you know uh, a lot of herpetologists that know Komodo dragons well. You know the old story is that they bite the prey, the prey go off die from a bacterial infection, and bacterial infections uh, you know can be pretty wicked, but they don't work that fast. And there's no doubt that uh, you know a lot of the signatures of of the of the prey death seem to be more in line with a some sort of uh, toxin. So. Uh, that, that, I think, is really kind of launched into um, a bunch of work by Dr. Fry to really kind of nail down you know, the, the, the type of toxins that are in the uh, saliva. Is this a venom? Um, and at this point, it appears that uh, there's been some isolated messenger RNA transcripts um, in that venom, you know, at least in that saliva of Komodo dragons, uh, that seem to encode various types of bioactive peptides and proteins that that, that target a whole bunch of different things from, you know, an, anti-platelet function to other types of things that, uh, that you know, cause the uh, quick demise of the prey that they just bit, so. Would you say it's more of like a um, taxonomic issue right now, more than just like, because uh, you don't really see like a lot of like official news out there of like, Okay, this this is we're gonna cla- we're classifying these as venomous, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Would you say it's yeah. just a taxonomic well, issue? Yeah. So right now, the I think that one of the ideas is that uh, um, is that we we kind of take the uh, the venomous lizards. Let's say, for example, uh, beetle lizards, Gila monsters, maybe uh, Komodo dragons. Probably there's probably other monster lizards that uh, that no doubt also produce venom. Uh, but you know, basically put them. Within more, instead of a, at this point, instead of a taxonomic group per se, you know, let's say, you know, you get the order Squamata, for example, instead of having a separate order or a separate suborder, um, is right now they've been sort of grouped into what's called a clade uh, called Inguimorpha, and there's one toxic, uh, Toxifera uh, basically within that, uh, the clade that, that is kind of encompassing some of these venomous lizards. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not, it's, it's, there's, there's not a, taxonomic resolution at this point, although I think Dr. Fry will try to be, if anybody pulls it off as far as trying to put this picture together, you know, Dr. Fry will definitely, uh, will definitely do that. He's not already done that. And I think as additional publications come out, I think it'll, uh, it'll be more resolved. But, uh, you know, at this point, that's kind of, uh, last I knew, that's kind of where things are at. But, you know, taxonomy, tell you what, taxonomy is probably the hardest thing to stay current on because it changes daily. So, but uh, that's kind of where things are at. Yeah, and uh, besides Helidermatids and Varanids, I've heard a few rumors that maybe some Iguanids have some sort of uh, yep. peptides yep. and stuff like that in their saliva. What's, yep. what's your knowledge uh, on that? Yeah, I mean, there's, the bottom line is that there's, it, 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 it's, it's likely that uh, most, let's say many lizards contain toxins, okay? And these toxins, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that when you start looking at, you know, what, what, you know, what, what's the composition of these, of, 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 of salivary secretions, you know, sort of thing. And so if you start looking at, you know, venom per se, you know, venom is just a, a form of a toxin, you know, really produced by an animal for the purpose of typically causing harm to another and that is injected. Now, it could be for the purpose of subduing prey. But for a lot of lizards, even like, the, say, for example, um, you know, the Gila monster. The Gila monsters eat typically baby animals and eggs and things that they're not using the venom per se for necessarily killing the, the organism that they're consuming. You know, even even small baby 
rabbits that they do take uh, out of burrows, you know, are, are not going to, you know, inflict any kind of major harm, and they can be killed pretty quickly by, by hemorrhaging some other things. But uh, the bottom line is that um, there's a lot of unknowns as to what is the exact function of venom in a lot of lizards. It could just be for defense mechanism. It could be maybe as a precursor for, di for chemical digestion, um, and that there's a secondary benefit of maybe predator deterrence, you know, sort of thing. So, uh, but, you know, you know, if you, if you kind of look at venom as a form of a, that is a form of toxin produced by the animal, that sort of begs the question, then what, you know, what exactly is a toxin? Well, you know, if, if iguanas are believed to have a venom, a toxin per se, you know, they, you know that, that a toxin really is any, it, it can be almost any kind of protein or even a small protein like a peptide uh, that, um, you know, by, by some, some sort of chemical reaction, uh, causes some sort of molecular change in the cells of the bite. So um, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, again, we have medically important venoms, we have those that are not. Those that are medically important are those that cause issues to humans sort of thing. So, you know, there's no doubt iguanids, you know, there's iguanids that seem to be uh, at least showing some properties in their saliva that have, that have at least a venomous quality. I don't think any, I think most herpetologists would be a little uh, reluctant to <laughs> call out a green iguana as being a venomous lizard sort of thing, but, you know, there's no doubt there's proteins and peptides and, you know, other types of molecules, even like glycoproteins and uh, other types of uh, molecules that uh, are also found in, you know, in venoms by, you know, what we would consider to be you know, truly a venomous species. So how would you say that, um, like, combining that with, like, the taxonomic question, like, so, like, with garter snakes, um, I've heard that they're venomous, but not at all in any way that affects humans. It's mainly right. affects the prey they catch. Um, how how so does that like go into yeah, like well, that portion of it? The taxonomic portion. Again, you know, I think I think if you start with the uh, premise that perhaps you know toxins are a lot more prevalent than what we thought it was, it may not really change. It may not really change taxonomy per se. I mean, if you've got a in the family, for example, Colubridae, you know, we have venomous, non, and what we call a non-venomous species, like the garter snake, which we now know also has peptides that are, are at least are, at least have some level of a, uh, that could be considered to be a toxin. It may not be medically important to you and I, may not cause any kind of a, a reaction to you and I, uh, but does t target uh, specific receptors on the cells of prey that has some sort of function. Again, it could be it just helps in the uh, uh, it help, may help in, in cellular breakdown for the purpose of chemical, chemical digestion. It could be something else, uh, but I don't I don't know at this point if you know if we start finding that that these toxins are really prevalent amongst many many species. Uh, these peptides, these proteins, we find these toxins or making these toxins. I, I don't know if it's really going to necessarily change the the, the you know the, the nature of taxonomy as we see it today. I think it's going to be mainly based on you know, usually first and foremost, genetic similarities and differences are going to be the, the, the major player that's going to help us to uh, resolve taxonomic differences. But, you know, again, and that's not to say that venom won't have a, won't be a, uh, a character state that we could use to tease that apart, maybe into subfamilies and those kind of things. So there might be some, some smaller level of, of taxonomic resolution that we could use to uh, pull out those that have certain type, maybe certain uh, groups of, peptides that others don't have. So, you know, who, who knows? We'll see if, uh, if, 
know, becomes a big player and, a, and catches on pretty uh, by, you know, by, uh, by Firestorm, by very important publications. Maybe it becomes a another one of the character states we can use to resolve taxonomies. You know, typically we have, you know, at least we, the, the three primary character states we use to resolve taxonomies, mainly, you know, first and foremost, uh, the molecular genetic uh, you know, component uh, or, you know, genetic similarities and differences, uh, behavioral uh, differences and, and similarities, and then also certainly uh, just, uh, uh, you know, just your, yeah, your, your, your uh, physical characteristics as well. So, you know, whether or not we had a fourth one, the venom, you know, venom, peptide, similarities, who knows, maybe that'll catch on. Yeah, I guess it, so I, right now my job is uh, I work as a research biologist studying mosquitoes. And like yeah. I guess a good analogy with that would be like there are some mosquitoes that can transmit diseases, whereas there are others that don't for various reasons. Either they don't, you know, um, get blood meals from humans or whatever. So, but taxonomically, they're still, they're, like it doesn't um, have a huge effect taxonomically on them. But it can play a role. Um, so I guess it'd be that'd be a good analogy for that. Yeah, and again, it might be that maybe maybe that we don't get to the point where we have a separate taxonomic uh, grouping of venomous, you know, reptiles within a certain you know family subfamily, and it may be just more of a uh, more 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 just looking at clade analysis that we're going to call this group uh, a, a clade, which doesn't have a taxonomic term, but still has taxonomic significance as far as the origin of some of these character states that we see such as, uh, such as venom. Cool. Um, do you want to uh, talk about um, your uh, specific research with the Tuatars in New Zealand? And cause that, that's actually pretty cool. I'd like to hear about some of that if you want to, if you could do it. Yeah, so um, uh, what we are looking at, it was, it was a very uh, kind of multi-task sort of uh, um, research. Uh, I was working with Dr. Jim Gillingham. Uh, he's a emeritus professor at Central Michigan University. And I was uh, fortunate to come in under his uh, National Geographic grant. And uh, so, um, anyways, uh, my my main role was to look at the feeding ecology uh, of the tuatara. Um, initially, it was going to be looking at the uh, the, the, the variation in, in feeding the, the, the variation in the feeding ecology between two different, uh, uh, two, two quite different types of habitat we, we found on Stevens Island. Uh, one is a grassy area, one's a forested area. We find, we find two tar in both, uh, but we find, found that the two tar in the forested areas were just more robust, seemed to be more healthy, just chunkier as compared to the two tar in the uh, open paddock area. So, you know, the obvious question is, well, what's going on? Why is that the case? Uh, so we wanted to kind of look at that, which we did, and pretty well nailed it down and had a lot to do with the quality of the prey uh, in the uh, forest areas. This was much, had a much larger calorie content. Um, and then the size of territories of the two tariffs, uh in the forest areas were just much smaller. So they're, they're having to, you know, they have to, you know, patrol less area to get better prey versus what was going on in the paddock area. So that was one thing we were looking at. We were also looking at uh, uh, the feeding ecology of the two tariffs on different islands as well. And that one had, that, that you know, that had some in that uh, some of the islands we looked at um, actually uh, ended up um, having uh, some different, uh, you know, eventually we kind of broke the tuatara into uh, several different species based on some genetic uh, variation. So anyways, the long and short of it is that my, my specific part was just kind of looking at what they were feeding on. Um, so, you know, really a, 
a big part of my study was kind of looking at you know, doing lot, you know, taking lots of stomach uh, samples uh, through a very somewhat non-invasive <laughs> procedure of of, of uh, you know basically uh, running some water into their stomach and then uh, uh, forcing the contents out through really just a, uh, a vomit reflex. Um, and then we would uh, keep the tutara for a couple of days in an outdoor pen just to make sure they were they were okay. And then we would uh, you know, release them to the site where uh, where we capture them. Um, and then we would uh, do a lot of uh, prey capture. Uh, so we did lots of different methods to uh, capture potential prey. Uh, and uh, and then uh, uh, we would uh, you know just kind of look at kind of correlate uh, whether or not there was a uh, feeding. Uh, preferences, uh, avoidance behaviors to certain prey, where it might be based on prey abundance. So that's a lot, a lot of what we did with that. We also looked at uh, reproductive behaviors, looking at trying to decipher the courtship behaviors. A lot of that was done through uh, through the work of Dr. Jim Gillingham, and then uh, we had some uh, uh, contributions to that as well. Um, so it was, just, it was a great project. I mean, I couldn't. I mean, it was uh, the tuatara was one of those species that I grew up drawing pictures of. My mom said she even showed me some pictures of what I used to draw on. So I was quite, quite enamored by the tuatara to be able to work with them in the field, to be able to hold a tuatara uh, was truly uh, life-changing, especially knowing that some of these tuatara, you know, were easily 80, 100 plus years old and uh, just a remarkable species. Was there any uh, unusual prey items you found that tuatara sprayed on? Um, well, you know, they're, they're definitely pretty opportunistic. So anything they can overpower uh, and catch, they're, it's, it's, it's fair game. It could be other, actually, smaller tutara. Uh, they, uh, during certain parts of the year, they, they took a lot of, of seabird heads. <laughs> they didn't eat the whole seabird because they're too big. But uh, uh, you, know, you, you used to see in the old, uh, old, old, old books of tuatars that tuatara and seabirds had this sort of uh, kumbaya sort of loving of relationship that they would, you know, share the same burrows and, you know, that was, that was so far from the truth that uh, actually uh, seabirds would opportunistically try to use the tuatara burrows uh, uh, for laying their eggs, but uh, if they happen to uh, head first venture into a, a burrow that has a tuatara, uh, quite often the tuatara would grab the head and they have a very interesting jaw mechanism with, and some very interesting modified uh, incisors that they would use to decapitate uh, the seabirds. They would eat the head and they would leave the carcass. Uh, and so you'd find a lot of headless birds, uh, especially these little birds called fairy prime, uh, during their nesting season, you'd find just a whole bunch of these headless carcasses all over the place. So that was kind of interesting. Um, but I think the, the, the other thing that was interesting was on Stevens Island, which is probably the largest known population of Tuatara is that the tuatara in the open paddock grass area primarily were eating on these little, kind of what we call in North America, these little roly-polies, you know, what you find underneath the logs, these little tiny little isopods that would, you know, curl up like an armadillo, but they're the small little isopods, and uh, they, they would eat these by the hundreds, and uh, that was a lot, of, a lot of the prey they consumed were, were, were these little isopods they'd find both in the burrows that they used as well as on the rocks they were prevalent on the, uh, in the open paddock area. So they, they had to eat a lot of these to try to keep up with some calories. There's no doubt they had a lot to do with the uh, kind of the lack of robustness they had in these uh, paddock areas. I had read that, um, and you can correct this if it's wrong, I had read that tuataras um, can only survive within like a, between like 70 and 75 degrees. Um, like that, that's yeah. their just homeostatic temperature range. 
is that a result of being pushed onto like the islands of New Zealand or 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 on like or back when they were actually on the mainland of New Zealand or um, or is that like a I mean I mean there's no doubt there? there's well here's the thing they're, they're actually you can actually find them active uh, in, in in the low 50s I mean we, we were on the one we were on a couple islands when it was uh, in the 50s and they were still lumbering around like it was nothing so I think that range is a little bit a little narrow than what you actually see in the field. Um, I would say the majority of the time that they're active would, would be kind of in that, uh, you know, low 70s, maybe upper 60s, low 70s. You know, you'll find them pretty active in that range. They're not real, they're not real hip about uh, anything higher than that. I mean, certainly you'll get sunspots that develop that will definitely heat up uh, much warmer than that. Uh, but they, they, really, uh, they, they, they really seem to kind of prefer the, uh, the cooler environment. And therefore, they do spend a lot of time uh, underneath in burrows, uh, but they will come out. You know, during the during the daytime, in the forested area, you'll find them out and about all over the place. Up in, you know, uh, up in low-growing shrubs, you'll find them on the on the forest floor. Um, in the paddock area, you don't find them out and about very often during the daytime. A lot of it has to do with a uh, a predator called the uh, Australasian Harrier. Uh, it's a hawk-like animal, and uh, uh, these hawks will patrol these islands for uh, for prey, including tuatara, and so the tuatara. Without that protective cover, of the canopy in the in the, in the uh, paddock area, these grass areas, they, they don't come out and pop very often during the daytime. Nighttime they do, but uh, um, but uh, uh, but anyways, so the, you know, activity differences were quite different. But you know, really, temperature goes as far as temperature goes, you'll find them active at much lower temperatures than that. Um, it was not uncommon on a very cold day when we had you know jackets on and you know ski hats and gloves and you know they seem to be perfectly content being out there uh, doing their thing. They're, they're definitely uh, cold tolerant, uh, and their metabolism is extremely uh, extremely uh, low. Uh, they, they, their digestive, you know, the rate of digestion is really, it's, it takes them a long time to digest something, and so uh, they're very, very cold tolerant, um, and they, they do perfectly fine with that. Uh, another thing, um, I, so I thought I heard you say that they, that you had or, or that they were teased out into a couple different species. Um, I know I read that, like at one point they were they were split into two different species and then put them back into one. Or um, so I was just curious, uh, just to kind of go into more. Yeah, of that. so you're, you're getting to the, uh, the never changing world of systematic <laughs> taxonomy, and it's just uh, uh, you know I, I kind of leave it to those guys uh, to keep yeah. us informed as to the latest and greatest. You know, it's uh, the. It used to be a, it used to be a monotypic species, a single species called Spinodon punctatus. That's the way it always was. And, uh, when I was out there doing my work, that's the way it was. But right about the midway through my work, uh, there was a pretty good justification to tease out a second species called Spinodon guntheri, uh, named after Albert Gunther, who was a herpetologist that was the first one to really identify these as a very unique reptile. Um, so, anyways. Um, so for, for, for many years, it, it kind of uh, kept at that. It's gone back and forth to maintaining those two species. Uh, there's been some different uh, mitochondrial DNA work that definitely showed, uh, you know, more than 5% sequence divergence between the two, which at that point gives you enough justification to break them up into two different species. Um, you know, some have basically brought them back into a single species, even on punctatus under the original classification. So uh, both of them have been published. So which one you want to accept is kind of up to you. I mean, from, from, an, from an 
evolutionary species concept, you could probably make a pretty good justification that every single island population is probably to some extent a, a different species, at least underneath the evolutionary species concept, because they're all certainly taking on uh, unique uh, trajectories in that direction. You know, they're, 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 not, they're not swimming from island to island. And so, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the idea that, you know, we have just a single species that, you know, occur between, on the, you know, on the islands of Cook, you know, at least uh, Stevens Island, which is in a Cook Strait, right between the north and the south island of New Zealand, up to the northern part of the North Island, and yeah, yes, these are all one single species. It's kind of, you know, I guess you kind of have to look at the, you know, the, the type of flexion pressures uh, and all, a lot of different things. But, you know, from, from a straight, straight genetic perspective, you know, it appears to be justification that, you know, there's, you can still qualify uh, at least a group into two different species. But, again, that, that's, it, it has been debated and still will be debated. Always will be debated because, you know, biologists are biologists and that's the way biologists work. You know, <laughs> we like to debate things and we like to be uh, uh, kind of uh, one up each other sometimes. But in the end, we all work together. Hopefully, they can try to resolve that. But uh, it, it's, it, you know, systematic taxonomy is a, it's a, it's a constantly changing landscape. And so that's kind of where it's at. Yeah, I think the old saying is the only thing taxonomists can agree on is that the other one's wrong. Yeah, sometimes that might be the case. <laughs> yeah. um, that's really interesting, though, that they so they don't um, popu- oh, population on one island won't ever mate with a population on the other island. But I mean, but not, not not without. I mean, again, you know, they, they, you know, I guess the answer to the question becomes, you know, how do they get to the island they they, they they're on? They're, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess yeah, you know, you have to start looking at, um, you know, in fact, I had this uh, that species is uh, Lysis maclotide, and uh, Lysis maclotide uh, has been always known as it, it's always been broken up into three different subspecies, and it, it, we'll get we'll, we'll relate this to Tuatara here in a second, but uh, with the, the, the pattern by which the Tuatara gets these islands, but in Indonesia these these, these pythons occurred on uh, occur on at least five different islands, probably more, but at least five different known island populations. We have. Uh, one that, that lies, at least that, 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 that is found within the island of Savu, uh, and it's called, uh, it's called, it's a scientific name, is Lysis Maclotis Savuensis. We have a population of these pythons on the island of Wetar that is called Lysis Maclotis Dunai, and then we have uh, Lysis, and then we also have these pythons on the islands of Roti, Simao, and Timor that are called Lysis Maclotis Maclotis. And so we, uh, what we were looking at is whether or not, you know, one is, uh, are these three different defined subspecies or should they be elevated to full species status, those kind of things. Anyways, that's a whole other yeah, story right there. But uh, one of the things we were trying to figure out is, you know, how do these pythons get to these islands? You know, these, these, the waters in that area are full of tiger sharks and predators and the, the likelihood of a python, you know, making a very, very long, long, long trek from one island to the next is pretty much Enough. But when you start looking at the, uh, uh, the, the genetics of, uh, of everything and, and trying to do, a, looking at what's called the phylogeography of these groups, which is just looking at the historical divergence of where these populations came from, it, it appears that um, another closely python species called uh, Lysis fuscus, the Australian water python, which we'll find on the northern part of Australia, uh, also gets into parts of New Guinea. And you start looking at different types of, of, uh, of uh, island connections, these little underwater, you know, uh, 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 kind of, uh, you know, I guess, uh, corridors, if you will, 
that used to be above sea level that are now below sea level probably provide a way for at least the Australian water python, they just bust us to get to New Guinea. From there, it appears that the Indonesian uh, sea, uh, sea current, which is very kind of counter counterclockwise cyclic, goes right along these islands. And it, it, it definitely, it definitely, when you start looking at the genetics of this group, it matches up almost exactly with these different currents that, that run around these islands. And it's very plausible that these, that these uh, pythons probably rafted. Uh, opportunistically, you know, through different types of climatic events, you know, tsunamis, those kind of things, uh, probably rafted from one island to the next opportunistically and probably spread that way. It's very, it's plausible that that's how a two-car got from one island to the next as well. Now, it's always, there's always that, you know, did people have anything to do with it? Sure, you know, people could have done it too. Uh, but, uh, you, know, this, you know, rafting definitely is becoming a more, more of a plausible way in which animals get from one island to the next, especially with animals that are not known to you know, to, to, to move from island to island, uh, you, know, uh, you know, at least, at least it, it, that's been documented. Now, you know, Komodo dragon, different story. They, 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 they swim from island to island all together, but you're looking at a very large lizard uh, that is able to, to do that. So, but uh, anyway. You don't see any, like, any, like, physiological or morphological differences between, like, the different populations of the different islands if they're not, um, there's no, like, gene flow or anything? Uh, you do see some. No, you do. That, that, that's why they originally uh, broke up the uh, Spinodon punctatus into Spinodon punctatus and Spinodon gunteri. It's because of some very, uh, uh, very uh, obvious uh, uh, character state differences, especially in regards to uh, just uh, morphology. The morphology led to then some genetic tests that showed enough divergence that it, it led early biologists to kind of reclassify this single species of two current to two different species. So. Yes, you do. That, that's why, you know, I, I think with enough um, uh, information and I think, you know, again, depending upon which species concept you want to use, you could probably make a pretty good justification that there's probably more than one species, probably more than two species of, of Tuatara. Interesting. So circling back to uh, your work with Gila monsters and beetle lizards, is there a specific reason you chose to work with their venom on that? Um, a lot of it had to do with the fact that you know there was a, uh, a growing uh, a growing amount of, of literature with uh, with at least with uh, the the, the uh, uh, Gila monster venom that you know there was there was definitely some uh, uh, benefits of venom as it applied to humans. You know the you know ironically the, the properties that make venom deadly. Are also make it so valuable for medicine as well, and that's the uh, kind of ironic thing that you know many many venom toxins, including those that are in the Gila monster saliva, uh, will target the same molecules that need to be controlled to treat diseases. So it's just you know it's it, 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 it's really the, the interest of kind of looking at okay what what can we what other things can we do with the uh, uh, the venom as relates to the medical world. You know, we have a can you know, we have an institute for cancer research at Bob Jones, and I think that there's this sort of uh, uh, this, this kind of multi-dimensional study between uh, you know, us working with the healing monsters in the Serpentarium, and then you know the the cancer lab kind of looking at some different projects was kind of a, a, a nice little arrangement that we could work together and, and, and kind of adding to the data set uh, that's out there with uh, healing monster venom as it relates to medicine, and so. Um, you know, a lot of the, you know, there's been lots of new treatments as a result of 
of, of finding out what are some of these peptides and proteins and kilomonster venom, uh, things that could help, you know, treat things such as different autoimmune diseases, certainly cancer, uh, uh, certainly, you know, diabetes control, you know, type 2 diabetes uh, has largely been controlled by some of the peptides that have been uh, extracted from kilomonster venom into a product called Viata. And so there's been just a lot of uh, interesting and very, very novel, uh, you know, uh, treatments as a result of venom research. It's not just Gila monsters, any kind. I mean, there's thousands of animals, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of animals that are producing uh, this type of venom that are going to have some sort of medical use. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, the, 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 the conservation of these animals becomes so important that we make sure we conserve these wild populations so that uh, if there's a medical benefit down the road that, you know, we don't lose the species before we find out what that is. Uh, you know, with, uh, if you look at, let's say, for example, uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a there's one one of the peptides that we were looking at is called Helodermin. Uh, Helodermin is kind of a newly isolated peptide, you know, from the venom of Gila monsters, uh, and kind of has, has been shown to kind of stimulate different types of, of cellular activities. There's this uh, uh, there's these uh, um, uh, there's there's, a, there's activity in cells that, that are controlled by what are called signal transduction pathways. These are it, you have to kind of target very specific proteins on the cell surface of, say, let's say, cancer cells, you're going to have to, you know, regulate that cancer cell to prevent it from dividing over and over and over, which is what, you know, contributes to the, you know, the, 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 the disease output of, of what's going on. So if you can kind of figure out, you know, how to destroy these cancer cells, or at least or prevent them from dividing, then you can start controlling the rate of cancer development. So uh, that's one of the things that these peptides do, is they seem to really target, at least with uh, especially with some of these small cell sarcomas in the lung that can develop, uh, that these these small peptides will actually bind to these different types of receptors on these specific cancer cells, and it starts it really starts kind of wreaking havoc on these uh, the the cyclic cyclase activity of these different sequence transduction pathways that then start uh, causing um, uh, kind of uncontrolled what we call apoptosis. Apoptosis is a is that, is what, is that, I guess another word you could say is cell suicide, but it's not just like a random cell suicide. All cells have a program point where they're going to die. Uh, and so uh, we want those cells to die so they don't become these renegade cells, become cancer cells. And so all cells have this very programmed rate of death called apoptosis. Well, with cancer cells, they're not really regulated. So if you can, if you can figure out how to, uh, how to work outside those that program, that program that would normally cause them to die, if you can get in there and cause them to die outside that, that control, then you've, you've, you've kind of fallen into something that can help uh, that uh, uh, at least get rid of the cancer. So that's, that, those are some of the things that we're trying to figure out and, and what we're kind of working on, at least in the uh, Institute of Cancer Research here. And a uh, follow-up question to that is, are there any other Venom research projects you're planning on pursuing in the future? Um, yeah, I think uh, one one would be essentially the um, uh, looking at well, one one that I was uh, really interested in is looking at uh, copperheads, and so uh, copperheads um, uh, produce some interesting um, uh, peptides. One is contorsistan. Uh, it's a it's a type of it's a type of peptide. Peptides are just small little proteins, but uh, we find this in actually the contorturics, you know, the species that, we, that make up the cover 
you, you, you've probably heard the word metastasis, you know, where if a cancer metastasizes, it spreads to other parts of the body. Well, a lot of times these cancer cells are able to do that because of these integrins, and the, 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 some of the peptides in copperhead saliva and venom um, actually really messes with those integrins, and therefore really kind of, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, because of how it binds to it, will help to limit the amount of metastasis that can happen as a result of that. So, anyways, all that to say, there's, uh, there's some other things that are of interest with uh, copperhead uh, venom that uh, I would love to uh, kind of get into. The, um, the, uh, the other thing is that the, that the venom itself, one of the early studies showed that the, the, the copperhead venom sort of inhibits platelet cell aggregation. In other words, it, and, and yet, yes, it, 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 what that basically sort of meant is that, that, that these peptides are really targeting these integrins, these, these, uh, these, uh, these uh, integrins, these little extensions of the cell membrane, where if you mess that up, it's going to ruin that cell's ability to migrate. And again, if you can now, if you can, if you can find a specific target receptor on a cancer cell that's sensitive, sensitive to that, contortion uh, for example, and copperhead uh, venom, uh, then again, you can help control metastasis and help to keep the cancer where it's at and make it more easy, easily uh, focalized for the purpose of treatment and, and getting rid of it. So, anyway, so, can, so copperheads would be a, a, a cool one. One, we've got a ton of copperheads in South Carolina, so it'd be an easy species to, uh, to find and, and to work with. We can certainly collect the venom uh, quite easily. And, you know, trying to milk, milk in a copperhead is far easier and less time intensive than is milk in a Gila monster, <laughs> which is because of, of the venom delivery apparatus of uh, Gila monsters. Um, it, you know, you, that, that venom comes from this very spongiest kind of uh, uh, salivary glands in the, in the bottom uh, jaw, and that, spun, that, 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 that venom just has to be kind of chewed and, and sort of exuded from the salivary gland and kind of work itself through uh, some little uh, channels in the, in the bottom of mandibular teeth, uh, and just through cap reaction, it gets you know, infused, you know, basically injected into the, really chewed into the, the, the prey. So it's kind of, so to get venom out of a human monster is, is quite labor-intensive. Getting, getting venom out of a copperhead is, is far simpler. Uh, and so I'm hoping we can maybe at some point uh, embark on a study with that. The uh, copperheads, they're, um, they're pit vipers, but they don't have uh, selenoglyphic fangs, correct? No, they do. You know, they're, they're selenoglyphic. Oh, they do? So they're, okay. Yeah, they have a, they have a hollow, hollow retractable teeth so, or fangs. So they are selenoglyphs. Okay. Um, the, another thing is, uh, so you, you, um, you mentioned there's there's been a handful of medications already that... Um, that have been derived from venom that are already in use, like ramipril and integralin. How how close are would you say they are to actually having like a a medication to treat cancer that's that's more like widely mainstream used? Obviously, there's years of testing that goes with it, like to get FDA approved and all that. But how close would you say they are to that? If I mean, I, I think they're I think there's there's already I, I think they're pretty close. I mean, but I, I mean that's it's a relative term. I mean, I guess the this whole thing with COVID, maybe it will help speed up a lot of areas of medical research because, uh, you know, if we can get a vaccine approved in, in, in a very short amount of time, that normally takes about 8 to 12 years to get approved. Maybe we can uh, get some emergency uh, uh, looks with some of the uh, therapeutic treatments with some of the venoms that are out there. So, uh, But as far as timetables go, it's hard to, it's hard to say. Um, typically, I mean, it's, you're looking at, you know, uh, it's, it, it can be a decade before you get something, you know, to the point where you're getting it uh, 
See him, but I'm blushing. All right, thank you. So long, folks. All right, guys. We'll see you. Take care. See you. So long, folks. Yeah, bye-bye.